This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley's pasture-raised chicken sticks. I'm super excited to share Paleo Valley's brand new pasture-raised chicken sticks. These chicken sticks are made from 100% pasture-raised chicken and organic spices that are preserved using natural fermentation rather than preservatives. So yes, no fake stuff or additives here. These chicken sticks are sourced from regenerative family farms raised on American pastures and each stick is free of chemicals, antibiotics, pesticides, and added hormones. Paleo Valley's chicken sticks are a perfect snack packed with 7 grams of protein and frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.com slash nwj and use code nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks again for listening and supporting this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. While you're here, please make sure to like and subscribe. If you're listening to this on podcast, please make sure to leave a review. My name is Judy Cho and I'm board certified in holistic nutrition. And I have a private practice where we focus on root cause healing. And that often starts with the carnivore cures, all meat elimination diet. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Ken Berry. I'm sure most of you that are listening and watching this content already know who Dr. Berry is. This interview was actually part of the 2023 carnivore summit. And I love the interview so much that I really just wanted to have it also on my channel. If you haven't checked out Carnivore Summit, you can find the information in the show notes. Dr. Ken Berry is a board-certified family physician, and he practiced medicine in a rural town in Tennessee. And for over a decade, as a family physician, he supported the epidemics of obesity, insulin resistance, and type 2 diabetes. As Dr. Barry now has a large following on social media, he is writing books and making videos to wage the war against obesity and type 2 diabetes. Dr. Barry is the founder of the Proper Human Diet and the Triple B&E Diet, or the beef, butter, bacon, and eggs, and sometimes seafood. As probably most of you know, Dr. Barry shares clips on very short topics on lots of different ailments and illnesses to give you guidance from a dietary and even supplementary way of healing. He has so much good information in bite-sized pieces that helps you start thinking of a different way to support your body's physical and mental symptoms that maybe standard care is not working for you. In our interview, we talk about Dr. Barry's proper human diet, some of the tenants to get started and how to be successful. We talk about iodine, thyroid function. We talk about fruit and honey. And if it's needed, we talk about fructose and how glucose is measured differently. And we talk about some lab works to also get to make sure that you're headed in the right direction to be healing from metabolic syndrome. We talk about nuance and personalized care. And I love that Dr. Barry has a spectrum for healing. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Dr. Barry. I'm super excited to be just chatting with you. I'm sure most people that are watching this already know who you are, but just in case there's like one person that may not, if you can introduce yourself. Sure. Thank you very much for having me, Judy. It's a pleasure chatting with you again. I'm Dr. Ken Berry. I'm a family physician. I've been practicing family medicine for over 20 years, and I used to be severely obese and pre-diabetic. And in my journey to correct those glaring evidences of error on my part, I kind of uh, rediscovered, along with Judy and many other people, what we've come to call a proper human diet. And so that's who I am now. I, I still have a small family practice. I see just a few people, 
but mainly I'm active on social media trying to undo the harm that I did in the first few years of my medical practice by giving terrible nutrition advice. Well, I I know that you have such a large presence and I will randomly run into people that have heard of you or watched your content. So thank you for that. I think you are ushering in so many people to even start a low carb diet and then fine tune it from there to maybe even try carnivore. But if you can tell us what is the proper human diet? So a proper human diet is based on about 12 principles. And I'm working on a book about this topic right now. Don't ask me when it'll be done. I don't know. The most basic principles are that the diet be ancestrally appropriate. And a lot of people, including most doctors and dietitians, have no idea that in the anthropological and paleoanthropological literature, there are stacks and stacks of, of research articles. We know very well what our ancestors ate in the past, a thousand years ago, 10,000, 50, 100,000 years ago. We can tell this from stable isotope analysis data. And so we know that before about 12 to 15,000 years ago, every human on the planet, and going back in our ancestors, three and a half million years, we know that they were super carnivores. So regardless of what your religion is today, or what part of the world you're from today, or what your ethnicity, your DNA, your ancestry, your ancestors, if you go back far enough in your family tree, your ancestors were super carnivores, which means that the majority of the food they ate every day was meat or some animal product. This is, And this is not even debatable in anthropology and paleoanthropology. Only when it comes to nutrition do we act like, oh, we don't know what humans should eat. We better do a research study. Well, that's foolishness if you take if you take all of the anthropological data. So number one, ancestrally appropriate. Number two, it should be nutrient dense. The entire reason we eat food is for nutrition, amino acids, fatty acids, vitamins, minerals. That's why we're eating. And so anytime you're eating something that is not nutrient dense, then you should call that what that is, which is a frivolous snack. Okay, or, or I just admit I'm eating for pleasure. I don't care if there's any nutrition in this. And that's fine as long as you're a grown adult and you're being honest with yourself. If you want to eat the cupcake, eat the cupcake. It's fine. I'll still love you. And so will Judy. But but you need to be honest with yourself. This is void of nutrition. And then the next principle, hearkening back to that cupcake, is that the foods you eat need to be uninflammatory. And this is a much bigger deal for some of us than for others of us. There seems to be this thing in all of human physiology called the normal distribution curve, right? And so there are some people who can eat that cupcake and they don't seem to have any inflammation from the wheat and from the the vegetable oil and from the preservatives. Uh, They don't seem to gain any weight from the carbohydrates, just the the sugar molecules in that. And it, it makes a lot of us jealous, but they seem to be able to do that. And they're over on this end of that normal distribution curve. The vast majority of people, if they did an occasional cupcake, it's not a big deal. That's no, it's not a big deal. Then over here, there are some of us that are very sensitive to the gluten and the gliadin in the wheat or the oxalates and lectins and phytates if there's nut flour in that cupcake. And then there are some of us who over here who fatten very, very easily and develop pre-diabetes very easily if we eat that cupcake, even occasionally. And I'm one of those people. Uh, so though, just if you just, those are really the, the biggest of the principles of a proper human diet. And then there are many more. 
Uh, but but if you just think about the common sense aspect of that and then realize that it is not a mystery what we ate 50,000 years ago or even 2 million years ago, we know that very well. Uh, immediately you're like, oh gosh, it it's probably very, very important what our ancestors ate because that's what our species evolved on. So we should probably try to mimic that. Obviously, you don't want to be eating a, a diet that promotes type 2 diabetes, fatty liver, hypertension, obesity. And so, and then also, obviously, you don't want to be eating foods in your diet that, that are pro-inflammatory. And so when you use just those simple strategies, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly what a proper human diet should be. So there's a lot of information, maybe misinformation, that says that meat is inflammatory. Is yeah. that not true then? Yeah, it's completely false. And so any of the studies that say, oh, look, meat is inflammatory, it raises CRP, it raises sed rate, it raises whatever. Typically, those are based on food frequency questionnaire collected observational data. And so which means these people were eating a mixed diet. And so, for example, you could have somebody in that in the arm of that research study who's super sensitive to oxalates. Right. And so, they're, yeah, they ate some meat, but they also they ate it on uh, a bun with French fries fried in peanut oil. And then they had, you know, a hot fudge cake for dessert. And so but they reported that they ate meat. And then when you check their sed rates, like, oh, their sed rates high, their CRP's high. Well, OK. And they reported eating meat. So therefore, it must no, that's that's silly. And uh, there are more and more scientists coming out and calling out nutrition research for what it is. Uh, the current stuff, basically all other scientific disciplines laugh at modern nutrition research. It's literally a joke at not only how it's conducted, but also how it's interpreted. And so if you want to just do an observational study with food frequency questionnaires, which are notoriously unreliable, and you want to post that and say, well, look, I found this. It's got a you know a hazard ratio of 1.02. Maybe that means something. But the danger comes is when when the researchers and then the headlines of, of mainstream media, when they interpret that observational research with just the tiniest showing of possible data, possible association, and they say things like red meat shown to increase in, in inflammation in the human body. Well, the average person reads the headline in maybe one or two paragraphs, and that they walk away from that article thinking it's proven that red meat causes inflammation. I mean, I saw it in, in the USA Today or in the New England Journal of Medicine. Many doctors fall for this foolishness, and many dietitians fall for this as well, not realizing that, first of all, if you read the entire article, it'll say it in there somewhere the researchers will say something like, well, we found that eating, you know, increased amounts of red meat may, may initiate inflammation in the human body. There's a key word in that sentence, isn't there, Judy? May. What is equal to may? May not. In that sentence, you can, they are interchangeable. Red meat might. You can exchange that with might not. Red meat could possibly. Red meat could possibly not. But people don't think that way when they see it framed a certain way. They just accept that as a fact, even though it really wasn't portrayed in a, as a fact in the research study, definitely. But many times in the newspaper article or the website article, if you read the entire article down there somewhere, the word may or might or possibly occurs, which means that you can insert may not, probably not, 
Possibly not, which means it, this, this research study tells you nothing. Right. And I think a lot of these studies, as you said, if they use food frequencies, we don't remember what we ate even two days ago. So when right. they're documenting these people or following them loosely with just questionnaires, we don't even know how accurate their responses are. And if there's just one factor of eating meat, again, it's not it's, it different in context, just like there's studies will, where they will say that they're showing high fat, but the high fat is with high carbs. So there's always this nuance and context that's missing in the headlines, as you say. And often, like you said, in the headlines, it's missing a lot of the context that's even in the study. But most people don't have time to watch or read the studies and see all the nuances. And that's where I think, like you're saying, most people or most scientists laugh at nutritional research because it's not really evidence-based or is it clinical trials or things like that. Exactly. And a great is for any nutrition researchers that may be watching this, I'm not, I'm sure there's one or two, a great study would be to take 200 people eating a mixed diet, just an omnivorous diet, right? And one arm of the study for the next 30 days, they will eat only beef, butter, bacon, and eggs. And you can do that. You could pay them a hundred bucks a day if that's really onerous for them. And then the other group would eat no animal products whatsoever, just eat a a vegetarian vegan diet for the next 30 days. You would check all of the inflammatory markers before they started their 30-day trial. And then you would check the markers once a week or once a day during that trial. And then at the end of that 30 days, you could actually say something about, it looks like the people who are on beef, butter, bacon, and eggs, all of their inflammatory markers surprisingly went down. And all of the inflammatory markers in the other group either stayed the same or went up, which is what I predict. They would stay the same to go up on a plant-based diet. Then you could act, that would be a a research study worthy of being published. And then researchers could be like, holy crap, we better do, let's do a 90-day version of that just to see if that, maybe that was, maybe that was artifact. I don't know. Let's, I wonder if we could find a hundred people to do a year long beef, butter, bacon, and eggs. And then at the at the end of that year, when they're all of their inflammatory markers were stone cold normal, do you see how just that simple study design that would shut all of the foolishness up until the end of time? It's like no, these people ate beef, butter, bacon, and eggs for a year, and all their inflammatory markers were gorgeous the entire year. Shut up about meat being inflammatory. So, not stating the obvious, but why doesn't a study like that occur? Well, so. <laughs> There's multiple reasons. Many of the department chairs in in departments of nutrition at the bigger universities, they are sold on a plant-based diet. They believe it in their heart of hearts. And people think, oh, no, science is objective. No, all the scientists in the world are just dudes and chicks, just like you are sitting there listening to this. They have preconceived notions. They have biases. They have beliefs. And if if a young researcher took my study I just talked about, to their department chair and said, hey, you know, I'd like to end once and for all this this bullshit about meat being inflammatory. Here's the study I want to do. That young researcher would, A, be kicked out of the, the department chair's office because that they would think, well, that's that would actually be harmful. I don't think that would get past the ethics committee. If you wanted to feed someone beef, butter, bacon, and eggs exclusively for a month, that would probably do permanent harm to them. No, we're not going to conduct that study. That's number one. Number two, most research, all research, needs money to actually fund the research, right? And so which big food manufacturer, you think Kellogg's or General Mills or Mondelez or Kraft Heinz, would they sponsor 
that research study. Now, you would think that the, the big beef producers like JBS, Cargill, Archer Daniels, Midland, um, U.S. Beef, you'd think they would sponsor that. But what most people don't know about those huge billion-dollar corporations is that they're actively investigating in fake meat and, in, and I mean, investing in fake meat and investing in plant-based meat and investing in lab-grown meat. They, they're, they don't, they don't want to talk about just meat that actually comes from an animal. They want to talk about plant-based meat or lab-grown meat because they believe in their heart of hearts. Again, those CEOs are just dudes and chicks with preconceived notions. They think that's the future because it's very popular right now to talk about that. So they also wouldn't be interested in funding that study. The only way to ever fund that study is if we were to crowdsource with your your people, my people, Sean Baker's people, and just basically raise three or four hundred thousand dollars, and then give that money to cement researchers who did. And obviously, we don't want to run the research because then it would be biased. All the plant based people say, "Oh, Dr. Barry was involved," you know. So give the money anonymously with an anonymous. This is how we want the study run. Go at it, and then let impartial researchers run that study. That's really the only way that study will ever be done. That's powerful. And hopefully we can get that done sooner than later. And as more and more people learn about this type of diet, um, it will eventually happen. So online, there's so much information of what to eat, how to eat, doing keto, low carb, and it gets so complicated. I know you just shared about the BB, uh, BBBE diet. If you could share a little bit about that, is that how you recommend generally people get started on a lower carb diet? Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Uh, for some people, yes. And so the reason we came up with beef, butter, bacon, and eggs, triple B and E, is because it's super easy to remember. Right. It's super simple to do. If what you're about to put in your face is not one of those four things, then it's not part of the diet, right? And I don't. There's nothing about beef, butter, bacon, and eggs that Nisha and I consider to be magical, or they they don't contain some secret nutrient that the other things don't. It's just that it's simple. It's easy to remember, and it's a challenge. And so a big part, as you know, Judy, of the power of a carnivore diet is that it's an the ultimate elimination diet, isn't it? You eliminate all potential plant toxins when you do that. Right. But also then people are like, well, what about fruit and honey? No. Is it beef, butter, bacon, and eggs? No, dummy, you can't eat it, okay? So for the next 30, 60, 90 days, this is just a challenge, and this is just an elimination diet. At the end of the 30, 60, 90 days of beef, butter, bacon, and eggs, if you don't feel any better, if you haven't reaped any health benefits, if your markers aren't better, if your pants don't fit better, then there you go. You that's that is useful information for you as an individual human. But what the vast majority of people find, even people who have done the beef, butter, bacon, and eggs challenge as a dare or as a bet, because one of the tenets of of the triple B and E is you're not going to gain weight. You can eat as much as you want, as many times a day as you want, eat until you're stuck, eat as many, as much as you want, you will not gain weight. And for the vast majority of people, even people trying to gain weight, like Joe and Rachel, the two, two crazy ketos, they took me up on that. And we actually made a side bet 
And they're like, you don't know, you don't know us. Okay. We can gain weight on beef, butter, bacon, and eggs. At the end of that, they had gorged on beef, butter, bacon, and eggs for 60 or 90 days. They both had lost weight and had, wow. and had pretty significant body recomposition, even over and above their previous very clean ketogenic diet because meat is, it's not magic, but it feels like magic, but it's really just human physiology is what's going on here. I love that you include beef, butter, bacon, and eggs. So as a nutritional therapist, I love it because they do have different nutrition facts. And for example, pork is much higher in vitamin B1 than beef is. And then adding butter, which has the different fats in the dairy, and then like the butyrate, and then eggs have so many different minerals. So it's almost ideal. Um, so I think it's great. The only thing if I could go back in time is I would, I would make it the triple B and ES. I would add some small seafood like uh, sardines, anchovies, uh, mackerel herring, uh, cod liver. I would, I would add an S at the end. So if anybody ever asked me, you know, can I have seafood? Yeah. As long as it's small, fatty, cold water seafood, that's waffle caught, knock yourself out. I think that's totally fine as well. And then, then, then Judy, you would agree probably it's you're right. You don't even need any supplements at that point. Agreed. You literally are getting every single thing you need in your diet. You could eat BBB and ENS for the rest of your life and you would be the healthiest person in your neighborhood. Never develop a deficiency. Yeah. The only caveat I'd put is in case you don't have good gut function, but I think over time you're right. I think even the gut can start yeah. rebalancing. And then yes, yeah. that I, I think that's like the perfect rainbow of meats that I like to call it. But yeah. So there's carnivores uh, and pretty big known, I'd say, quote unquote, carnivores that love fruit and honey. Yeah. Um, and so that has now become some way and somehow a carnivore diet. Um, I personally, in my practice, don't consider any of that carnivore because, again, some of the inflammation from these plants will make some of my most unwell clients sick. Yes. What are your thoughts with fruits and honey? Well, I'm, I have mixed feelings about this because I... Paul Saladino and I are very good friends. I like Paul a lot. He is correct that fruits are the part of the plant that the plant actually doesn't mind if you eat. I totally agree with that. I think that as far as the inflammatory phytochemicals, they're at much lower levels in fruits. Totally agree with that as well. Also, adding, including fruits in, in, in a carnivore diet, in a carnivore diet, makes the tent much bigger doesn't right. Judy. There's a lot of people who are like, I can't eat just beef, butter, bacon, and eggs for 90 days. But if you're like, well, you can have mango and grapes and avocado. They're like, oh, well, okay then. Yeah, I'm in. So in that respect, I think it's bringing a lot more people and putting the words carnivore diet in a lot more people's mouths, even though they're doing it incorrectly. Here's the main danger. This is my major problem with what Paul currently is espousing. And I, I don't know if he'll continue to to promote this way of eating uh, let's call it animal-based. I don't know if he'll okay. continue after some recent labs that he got, but basically fruit is full of fructose, right? That's where the word fructose gets its, its, it has the same root. It is fruit sugar. Now, when you go to your doctor and you get a hemoglobin A1C checked or a fructosamine test checked, these are the two ways that we can kind of tell if you've been eating too much sugar and having too much glycation in your diet. Both of these tests, by definition, if you read the initial research that the, the researchers used to get this, the, the, glu, the glucosamine, uh, I mean, the fructosamine and the A1C test, FDA approved. It says very clearly in the research that it only checks for glucose to either lysine or, or, or glycine. That's, that's the bond that this test looks for. 
This test is blind to fructose glycation. That's number. That's the number one thing. And then the number two thing, when you also know the very important fact that fructose is seven to 10 times more glycating than glucose. Now, Paul argued with this, but one of the research studies that he used to argue with it, he didn't read it all because at the end of the, at the, end of the study, the authors literally say, this test does not look for fructation or fructose glycation. And so when he's espousing people eating three, 400 grams of, of carbs in the form of fruit a day and honey, honey is virtually pure fructose. Right. There is some sucrose and glucose, and that's the way it is with fruit as well. They are mixed sugars, but it's a very high percentage of fructose. You're getting a monstrous amount of fructose glycation. And then if you go to the doctor and get your A1C checked, it, it might be normal. And so, so, in my opinion, dangerous amounts of glycation are happening, gumming up your, your cells and tissues and your organs. But the tests that your doctor will check are blind to that glycation. And that's very, very concerning. So just to reiterate what you're saying, and I fully agree with you, but glycation is really like just the stickiness. So if we think about corn syrup, that's mostly fructose. Corn syrup is very sticky. So imagine what it does to your cells and the stickiness against the organs. And that stickiness is what causes a lot of the damage and the inflammation. So when you're checking, um, even on a continuous glucose monitor, it's just more of the glucose it's measuring than That's the fructose. All That's all it's okay. measuring. It's not measuring the fructose at all. Uh, continuous glucose monitor, a finger prick glucometer, a hemoglobin A1C or a fructosamine, even though it's got fruct in the name, it still checks for, for a glucose amino acid bond. That's how the test works. And I think now Paul would agree with that since Mark K made so much fun of him for not reading the actual study that he actually used in his video to disprove this. Uh, I think probably now he would agree with that stance. And I, I hope, I hope that in his heart, he's ruminating about whether maybe he should change that advice. Yeah, while we're just being super candid, um, there was a few studies that he used in one, I don't know if it was a video or, but I got it from some of the, our clients and they were concerned because he showed that it was a non-issue that fructose can be relatively healthy, especially if it's from fruits. And so then I looked into those actual studies and all of the authors were sponsored by Coca-Cola. And it was just so insane that he's using yep. that when yep. he was so against that type of study. So um, yeah. yeah. And if anybody, if anybody, and so this is a great lesson in human nature too, because if anybody's read Paul's book, The Carnivore Code, I still I agree with one hundred percent of what he said in his book. But in an in an effort, because you know we all got to make a living, we all want to be very popular, we all want to be the, a big deal. That's just human nature. We none of us can help that. You want that, Judy. You want to be worldwide famous for being the the nutrition with Judy, and I, I don't blame you for that. That's a good thing. But at the same time, Paul, try, I, I think that he's made some just normal mistakes that human beings make. He's tried to get too big. He's tried to get too big of an audience. And he's he's loosened up on his criteria. And now I, I don't agree with the, that part. And the honey, a lot of people think there's magic in honey. I mean, I'm not joking. They literally think that honey is magical, right? And so that's going to get millions of people to listen Whereas otherwise they'd be like, oh, honey's bad for me. Well, I don't believe anything you say then. But I, this is just a great study in human nature, how you can be so right and then go so wrong. And I'm, what I'm hoping is, is that he can tie that narrative up by a, a repentance video saying, <laughs> I, 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 was wrong. I was wrong. I was I was literally spouting 
research that was done by Coca-Cola owned researchers. And I was spouting videos that literally say in the, in the, the study, this doesn't check for fructation. I know him to an extent. So I feel that it wasn't just for fame and money. I mean, I'm sure there's always, like you said, the human desire of that. I really think he wasn't able to balance his electrolytes. And I do believe that in him. I just wonder, I wonder if there was something other, more underlying. So was it that he wasn't eating enough fat, right? I I don't think he ate much dairy back then. So I just wonder, it didn't work for him, but it works for thousands and 10,000s of other people. But I just wonder, maybe you just needed to switch up your macros. Maybe you needed to do other things before you had to introduce carbs, because there's a whole population of people that thrive without the fruits and honey. And I know there are some people that follow him that say they do feel better, but is it a placebo effect? Because come six months to a year, do you really feel much better? And if it was an electrolyte imbalance, what other root cause is there? So Yes. And I think there's many ways you can get more electrolytes in your diet besides eating hundreds of grams (laughs) of carbohydrates a day. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. That makes total sense. You know, um, you talk a lot about C-peptide. Um, I think you were the first person I actually learned that from as well. So sometimes insulin is not the best marker. Can you talk a little bit about why we should be telling all our doctors to test our C-peptide? Well, the most important reason is that if someone is currently injecting any insulin, mm-hmm. then the fasting insulin test is useless. You cannot use it at all. It won't tell you because what we're, what we're looking for is we want to know how much insulin is your pancreas producing, right? That's what we want to know. And for many people, they'll have a normal A1C, but the doctor didn't check a fasting insulin or a C-peptide. And so they're they're having to stay super hyperinsulinemic in order to have a normal A1C. In my opinion, that is as unhealthy, if not more unhealthy, as having an elevated A1C. I think they're both hyperinsulinemia, and hyperglycemia. I think they're both very, very dangerous for long-term health, right? So the C-peptide, when your beta cells in your pancreas, when they make a molecule of insulin, it actually starts as pre-pro-insulin, and then a little piece breaks off, and then you've got pre-insulin, and then another, the, the C-peptide and the insulin break apart. The insulin goes about its job, and it has hundreds of jobs in the human body. And the C-peptide we scientists currently say it doesn't have a real function in the human body, but I know and you know there's no way that's true. When when something has evolved over millions of years, every single thing in that organism has dozens, if not hundreds, of functions. We just don't know what the C peptide does, but we do know that the C peptide levels in the blood are much more stable than fasting insulin, which is doing this constantly based on food, stress, all kinds of other things. C peptide does fluctuate, but it's a much flatter curve. And so you don't necessarily have to be fasting to check a C-peptide level. And so for busy primary care doctors, that becomes very important. So if I say, you know, I'm in the clinic, it's 4.30 p.m., everybody's eating that day. So I can't check a fasting insulin, right? But if they haven't eaten in three or four hours, I can check a C-peptide without having making them have to come back the next morning fasting. And I can still get pretty darn useful clinical information I can, number one, rule out if anybody's C-peptide is, is, is within normal range, then they're absolutely not a type 1 diabetic. And there are people who have been misdiagnosed as type 1 or type 2 diabetics in adulthood who have developed LADA or MODY or just a late onset type 1, and they're being treated as a type 2. This happens every day. 
And so when you check a C-peptide and it's 0.0 or 0.1, that person's a type 1 diabetic and you've been treating them inappropriately and dangerously as a type 2. None of the type 2 diabetes medications help a type 1 diabetic at all. And so if anybody's listening and they're, they think they're a type 2, but yet their blood sugars are routinely 3, 4, 500, even when they're eating relatively low carb, you need to go to your doctor immediately and say, check my C-peptide, especially if they're injecting insulin. And that, then they're like, dude, I'm a type 1 diabetic and you tell me I was type 2. Not only are you going to help that person literally save their life, but you're going to teach that doctor, hey, knucklehead, there are some adults who develop diabetes and it's not type two diabetes. Right. In the ranges for C-peptide, I don't know if you feel comfortable, but is there a range that anything beyond a certain number that you would say is too high that's showing maybe hyperinsulinemia? Yeah, there definitely is. And uh, Kim Howerton and I talk about that in okay. our book, Common okay. Sense Labs. Uh, and it, it varies from different uh, reference labs, Quest, LabCorp, uh, and then uh, regional hospitals, they'll all have their kind of normal range. And so that varies a little bit. So I hesitate to say what I okay. think that is, but we definitely list that in the book with the, the different uh, reference labs. But definitely if your C-peptide is above the reference range for whatever lab you're using, you're absolutely hyperinsulinemic. Okay. And if, you're, if your C-peptide is getting towards the upper end of normal, you're almost certainly hyperinsulinemic. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. So in that book, it shows the different reference ranges for the different labs. Okay, great. And we'll put all of that in the show notes. And then you mentioned shellfish. I'm guessing one of the reasons for the inclusion of shellfish, if you could do the whole B, B, B and E diet again, would be maybe some iodine. Can you just touch upon yeah. really quickly the importance yeah. of iodine? Yeah, iodine is super, super important. Most doctors and dietitians are are mortified. Yes. When they find out somebody is supplementing iodine, because all they remember is when they were a little kid, the little bottle of mercurochrome or methylate that had the skull and crossbones on it that their grandmother had in the, the pantry, right? And so they think iodine will kill you. Then also, you know, they think about radioactive iodine, yes. like with Chernobyl, and then everybody had thyroid cancer, and they don't just sit down and do some simple research and do some simple brushing up on their human physiology, and they for, they either forget or they never learned that that every single cell in the human body that we've ever studied, and this is, I still stand by this, without exception, there is not a cell line in the human body that does not contain a sodium iodide symporter on the cell membrane. Now, what this is, is a little machine, little cellular machine that grabs iodine from outside of the cell and pulls it into the cell, and it requires energy to do that. Now, if any, any of you guys remember any of your biology, you know that a cell doesn't do anything that costs energy unless it's important. Right. That's just a basic, basic tenet of animal biology, right? And I am an animal biologist by training. That's what I got my undergrad degree in. And so immediately you're like, wait, every single cell in the human body has sodium iodide importers on it, and they're spending energy to pull iodine inside the cell. But anybody who understands biology, that's the end of the argument. There's Iodine is not dangerous. Iodine is absolutely required, right? It is an essential mineral. and But most doctors think it's just about the thyroid. Maybe they maybe if they're have they've read a little bit extra, they know it's about the thyroid and the mammary glands, right? And if they've really done their homework, they know it's about the thyroid, the mammary glands, and the salivary glands, because those are the three big tissues that 
concentrated to supra um, physiological levels. And that is true. But every single cell from the skin cells in your toe to the cells in your ovaries or testes to the cells in the, the your retina, all of them have sodium iodide importers. They need iodine on a daily basis. And that's why if I could go back, I would add seafood is because if, if, if there is a chance if you're eating a even a well-formulated ketogenic diet, that if the soil that the plants grew in that you're eating, if there was no iodine in that soil, there will be no iodine in the plants. And if the meat and the eggs that you're eating, if the animal did not graze on soil that contained iodine, then so, so cows are magical, but they cannot create iodine out of nothing. It was either in the soil, fed the grass, they ate the grass, now it's in the cow, or there's not enough iodine in, in the beef. That's just how it is. Same goes for eggs, same goes for every other animal on the planet. And indeed, in the middle of very large continents like North America, there are places called gorder belts where virtually everyone, if iodine's not supplemented into their diet somehow, they'll have a big, huge gorder. And that's that's their thi- their thyroid gland getting bigger and bigger, trying to get enough iodine to do their body's functions. And that's why we started to iodine salt back around World War One, is because they couldn't get any of the young men from Minnesota, Wisconsin, all that part of the United States, they couldn't draft them because they all had these huge gorders, which would get you disqualified. And so they talked to the salt manufacturers and said, please start putting some salt so we can draft all these boys to go fight in the war. And that's where that came from. Now, iodine salt is a terrible source of iodine because iodine, like many other elements, can sublimate. It can go from a solid form to a gas form. And so if that umbrella girl saw it sit on the shelf for six months or a year, there's no iodine left in that. All the iodine is sublimated. Okay. Number one. And then number two, umbrella girl salt and many other popular brands of salt contain dextrose, which is literal sugar. Right. They put sugar in the salt. Not joking. Look at the ingredients. And so how did our ancestors get iodine? Then that becomes important, right? Well, they knew about certain outcrops of rock that you would go and you would you would get that rock and grind it up or just lick the rock like many wild animals do. Most of us live near the ocean. And indeed, if you live within 50 miles of a coastline, most of the soil there has plenty of iodine in it just because of the salt spray picked up by the wind and carried inland. And so you don't have to worry about that if you live near a coastline. But if you live in the interior of Asia, the interior of Europe, the interior of, of North America or even South America, you need to think about iodine and, and supplementing it somehow. I interview so many people and I know that you do so many educational videos because my next question was going to be, well, I know people are going to think about iodine salt and then you just answered it for me. So it's yeah, because I answer this a lot. I, just, <laughs> I know where to go, right? I know. I know. I love it. But the only other thing I would add to everything you said, which I 100% agree with, is when Arthur in in fact, with our thyroid hormone, T4 is created with, I think it's tyrosine, so an amino acid and iodine. So you do need it also for thyroid function. Absolutely. And I know so many thyroid doctors say you cannot supplement iodine, which is, it's just Listen, incorrect you, information. You would expect that endocrinologists right. would just know this stuff. Because I can remember as a medical student and as a resident, an endocrinology resident was considered a nerd's nerd. Oh. Okay. Uh, and so were neurosurgeons, you know, there was just the, they were like, they're a nerd's nerd, which is a compliment in medical school. That's right, not right. derogatory. That's like the ultimate compliment. 
like I'm a nerd, but that guy's really a nerd. Okay. But literally that's who's most often going to tell a patient, Oh, you need to stop the iodine supplementation. That's dangerous. You have Hashimoto's or you have uh, hypothyroidism, you have hyperthyroidism, or even you have thyroid cancer. You can't be supplementing with iodine. All of those statements are ignorance, ignorant in the exact way. If you looked up the number one definition at Webster.com, what does ignorant mean? That's how I mean that word. <laughs> they currently do not know what the hell they're talking about. When even people with thyroid cancer, they need a source of iodine in their diet each and every day. And to say they don't is ignorant. I'm sorry to be uh, abrasive, but um, that's, I mean, you're literally dealing with people's lives at that level. Right. And you tell someone to stop their iodine supplementation when they're already depleted. That's terrible advice. No, I love it. I love it that you just call it for what it is. Sometimes I feel that because I'm not an MD, if I said something like that, people would counter, but I love that as an MD, you just call it. So I love it. That's you my know, job, right? As we're closing, if you can just share a couple tips, you know, if maybe I'm carnivore curious, maybe I've done keto, what should I do to really just start being a little bit more successful? Yeah. So a lot of people come to keto and they have great initial results, right? You've seen that thousands of times as I have as well. And some people, it takes them all the way to their ideal body weight, perfect lab markers, and they feel amazing. And that's why, in my opinion, the proper human diet is a spectrum, somewhere between zero total grams of carbs or as close as you can get to it as carnivore all the way up to 100 total grams of real, whole, one-ingredient, ancestrally appropriate carbs. I think that, that, that there are people who do great with 90 total grams of carbs a day, depending on their age, their overall health status, where they live in the world, probably their gut microbiome, right. and probably their genetic heritage to some degree. They do great, and they'll do great at least for this part of their life, because I also think age is important as well. So maybe in your from your teens to your 30s, that's perfect for you. But then in a later stage in life, you might need to tighten up on the carbs in order to keep those lab markers perfect and to keep the waistline where you want it to be. But I think there's also a large percentage of people that are either so inflamed from the phytotoxins or just from the excess carbohydrates that they, they're like me, they fatten very easily. I don't feel like, Judy, I, I've ever had a problem with, with phytates, lectins, oxalates, uh, saponifins, phytoestrogens. I don't think those have ever really bothered me. But the carbs, Judy, oh, honey, the carbs. If I eat too many carbs on a daily basis for too long, I'll start to gain weight and I'll start to become pre-diabetic. That's just mm-hmm. what's going to happen with me. And I, I, that's why I stay a carnivore. It's not the phytochemicals really for me. Right. That I know of, right? Let me throw that caveat in there that I know of. But there are a large percentage of people due to the phytochemicals or due to the carbs that they've got to stay much, much lower. And so Nisha kind of came up with the term ketovore for 10 total grams or less. So you can have a little bit of garlic and onion and maybe just a little bit of green stuff to keep your mom from yelling at you because there's nothing green on your plate. Right. But many people need that ketovore options so they don't go crazy with just meat and eggs only. But at the same time, the carbs are super low. And you can also pick from the, the, the lower phytate and oxalate and lectin categories, right? So that you're not getting that inflammation. And then I think there are some of us who need to be as close to zero carb as possible. And then in honor of Michaela Peterson, I also think that there are people who should eat only ruminants, salt, and drink only water. 
I think that their their immune system, and that may not be permanent. It may be. I don't know. But I think their immune system is so confused and so inflamed that they need to they need to do the ultimate elimination diet, which is the line diet, ruminant meats, salt and water. That's that's it. At least for ninety days. Then we get to do this wonderful thing of self experimentation, right? You can add back in some chicken, see what happens. You can add back in some shrimp, see what happens. And you can do this, and then you can kind of find your personalized, proper human diet. You can add back in some veg, see what happens. Poor Nisha, she loves um, brassicas. She loves them to death. But the other night we went out, and she had some Brussels sprouts. And I had one because they were freaking delicious. They were just kind of roasted. Oh, man. She looked like she was three months pregnant for the next three days. And she's like, well, that's it. I I mean, that's pretty clear. I I can't argue with that because it was cute that she looked, you know, three months pregnant for three (laughs) days. That's cute. But if you're eating that every single day, that, that becomes chronic, inappropriate inflammation. And that leads straight to chronic serious diseases for many, many people. I love that you're not dogmatic. Um, I'm totally on the same page with you. When I work with the most unwell, we start super strict, do ruminant, lion diet, et cetera. And then the goal is find the rhythm that makes sense for you that allows you to stay consistent. I think because you have such a large audience, it helps you to realize it's impossible to stay dogmatic because if you do, you're going to miss out on some subset and everyone is so different, which I'm sure they challenge you. And it, I love that you are a big account, but then also sharing a, you have to find what works for you because ultimately I think that is the, the, the secret sauce, which is not fun. It's not, you know, magical, but it's really find the, that, that broad spectrum, as you mentioned, you have to find where you fit into it because that's the only way you can do it long-term and actually have optimal health. Absolutely. And, you know, people who have been very, very sick and inflamed for decades, when they do find their niche on the proper human diet spectrum, they kind of feel like that's magical. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find you? Um, I know you're really big on YouTube, but are there other places? I know you, I think you do like a live every week where people can ask you questions, but if you could share a lot about this. Sure. So I, I've got a little YouTube channel. If you just search YouTube for Dr. Barry, you'll find that. Um, and when I'm feeling particularly snarky and confrontational, you'll find me on Twitter. When I'm feeling loving and, and gentle, you'll find me on Facebook or Instagram. I've got, I wrote Lies My Doctor Told Me four or five years ago. And and I've got a new book out with um, Zane Griggs, a a personal trainer friend of mine from Nashville called Kicking Ass After 50. It's written for men, but the principles apply to to all genders and all sexes as well. And then Kim Howard and I wrote the book Common Sense Labs to kind of help people understand what labs you even want to ask for. Secondly, why would you ask for those labs? So when the doctor says, well, I wouldn't even know what to do with the C-peptide, you can be, well, dummy right here. You can just read this is why it's important. And then also we even included the ICD-10 codes because docs will say, well, your insurance won't pay for that. And then you can say, well, if you'll use the following codes, they actually will pay for it. So shut up and order my lab. When Nisha and I do a, a YouTube live every Monday night at 7 p.m. Central where we just for the an hour, it's just rapid fire machine gun question and answer. And then we also have a private group if people are like, yeah, I love your YouTube lives, but I actually would like to not be asking questions with 4,000 other people. So they can join that group. It's very uh, cost affordable. And we do multiple additional live Q&As in there as well as uh, we have mentors in there who can answer the newcomer questions. 
so that we don't, you know, we literally have to answer 20,000 questions a day if we answered every single question. Wow. So that's that's kind of how we spend their time. I'm also a farmer and a rancher. I just came from the pasture and took a shower so I didn't stink uh, for this for this Zoom call. Well, thank you so much. I love that as even as you grow and are so successful writing multiple books and doing all these things, you stay so reachable. And I think so many people, I mean, I have a lot of people that watch your stuff. And then eventually when Carnivore doesn't work, they'll work with us. They mention your books. They mention how they learned a lot from you. And so I think the community at large are so grateful and appreciative for all your content because it's really what ushers in so many people to learn about this way. And you're giving so many people a lifeline that they never knew was possible in their own hands. So thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. And, you know, somebody said the other day, doctor, you've you've changed my life. You've improved my health so much, or you've literally saved my life. And my reply to that is I'm a doctor. Isn't that what I'm supposed to be doing? <laughs> That's kind of my job. So thank you, Judy, for having me. Thanks to everybody listening and, and who who have bought one of the books. I appreciate it more than you'll ever know. And what I would appreciate more than anything is if you would pick out a friend or a loved one or a relative who's really, really unwell metabolically, right? They're they're obese. They've got type 2 diabetes. They've got hypertension. They've got fatty liver. They, they feel miserable every day. Reach out to them lovingly and diplomatically and say, hey, you know, there is a there's a way back to good health. And and I have used it for myself. You maybe have seen the transformation. Let me help you to, to enjoy the good health that I now enjoy because I love you and I want that for you as well. That's how you can pay me back. Thank you. That's amazing. I love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Barry. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Dr. Barry is so fun. And as much as he's a doctor, he just keeps it so real and just calls out stuff that may not always be true. He always leans on the science and evidence-based research, as well as the millions of followers that give him information about what really works and what doesn't. I hope that you get some information and understand the importance of iodine or why it's important to eat other salts than iodized salt. I hope one day as the people share it more and more about this diet, we will eventually have the studies and have the science catch up to us that a ketogenic, low-carb, carnivore diet can truly be healing and reverse a lot of the metabolic syndrome illnesses and reduce inflammation with just diet alone. But until we get there, the importance is that we share as a community, our healing journeys. And as Dr. Barry said, as a thank you, just help your fellow neighbor and loved one. And you can share by sharing the triple BE diet or the proper human diet, or just sharing about eating mostly meat at every single meal. Okay, guys, you know the drill. Make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. 
At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free, because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.